Welcome, y'all, to the Direct Examination Podcast. I'm Amber Fulmer. And I'm Dane Phillips. And Joseph B.S. is not here with us tonight, but he is here with us in spirit. He is driving somewhere in Georgia. Um, Banjos are probably playing. We just don't know where that he is (laughs) right now. But before we get started, we just want to thank our listeners for their overwhelming support both on social media, through contacting us, through our Gmail account, for posing questions, for giving us ideas for guests. Without you, this would not be possible. And you are the reason that we put on this podcast and so that for lawyers alike and just for the general public. And our hope, our hope is to make this entertaining for you. It is to make it educational for you and to hopefully give you a better sense into what we do. So again, thank you so much for your support and for following us, for downloading these podcasts. And without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Dane, who is giving us an introduction into one of our best guests thus far. Absolutely. So we're incredibly excited. Although this is a South Carolina-specific podcast, uh, we welcome our neighbor to the north, an attorney who is nationally known uh, for his criminal defense work. Uh, Our guest today is David Rudolph. He's primarily known for his work in the Michael Peterson trial, uh, which is memorialized uh, in the famous Staircase documentary that's currently on Netflix. I became aware of this documentary uh, many years ago when it first came out, and I'm just excited that Netflix was able to revive it and have the additional episodes to follow up with, essentially, the biggest turn of the case. Mm -hmm. And and with that, uh, to give you a little bit of background information to David's life. He began his career as a public defender in the South Bronx of New York. He later became a federal public defender in Brooklyn. And then as a transition, he took a job as a clinics professor at North Carolina Law School, where he taught the criminal practice clinic. And and in 1982, kind of the, the next big turn of his life, he started his own law firm with a good friend. And as the rest of they say is history, we're going to try to do as deep of a dive as we can into some of these issues that I think our listeners will be pleased uh, to, to learn more about, especially ones who have followed the documentary on Netflix. And uh, again, just thank you for, for coming on the show, David. Well, thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, we first kind of wanted to start about uh, with your career as a lawyer and, and as somebody who started out as an appellate defender and then went uh, to do trial work as a public defender. Uh, I, I love to hear people's stories of how they started, you know, doing public defense. And since uh, Monday was uh, Constitution Day, the Sixth Amendment's right to counsel is such, obviously, as uh, the cornerstone of uh, the bedrock of, of our existence. So with that being said, why did you become a public defender? Was that something you had always wanted to do uh, when you went to law school? Well, you know, uh, like a lot of people of my generation, I, I grew up watching Perry Mason. Um, and uh, Perry Mason was a criminal defense lawyer who uh, everybody admired. Uh, you know, he wasn't uh, the sort of uh, stereotypical, sleazy defense lawyer that you see on TV and in movies these days. He was an upright, righteous person who, uh, who uh, defended people uh, ethically and, and usually successfully. Uh, and so that, I think, played a role. Uh, when I was in law school, I was in a clinical program uh, and had a chance to represent people uh, who were charged with, with misdemeanors, uh, indigent folks. Uh, and that was a great experience. So for me, it was, it was sort of a natural evolution 
once I got out of law school to uh, to go uh, into the public defender's office and and I was fortunate. I went up uh, to the South Bronx uh, where I got an amazing uh, number of uh, hearings and trials. Uh, I actually worked in the same office as Barry Sheck, who went on to fame uh, with the Innocence Project, uh, and uh, and both of us uh, worked in the uh, in a very uh, unglamorous office on the top floor of a burnt-out building in the South Bronx uh, until uh, until uh, we both moved on to uh, to our next stops. Well, I, just even the uh, the thought of you working with Barry Sheck and how you know both of your careers and of course what the Bronx Public Defenders has turned into today. As somebody who's a graduate of the National Criminal Defense College, I, I know uh, that kind of the the head of that office is is critical in teaching the Bronx defenders to be as zealous advocates as possible. Uh, so just the whole thought of having uh, essentially the co-founder of the Innocence Project and, and you as well being in the same office as young lawyers is, is quite, a, it's quite amazing. It was a, it was a, it was a great time. And we, uh, you know, uh, we sort of viewed ourselves as, uh, as in a war. Um, uh, it, it sort of looked like a war zone. Uh, and we ate at one restaurant. The DAs and the cops ate at a different restaurant, uh, and and uh, that was just how it was back in those days. Uh, you know, uh, everybody essentially got along, but we we sort of stuck to our to our own tribe. Well, and with that, I noticed on your website that you had uh, that you were a member of the National Forensics College. Uh, that obviously Barry Sheck. Uh, has helped uh, co-found as well with the National Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. That kind of brings me into the next topic uh, with forensic science. Obviously, that played a critical role in the Peterson trial, specifically uh, improper, flawed, junk science, uh, and certainly some prosecutorial misconduct that allowed that to happen, uh, which ultimately led to the big turn in the case of him receiving a new trial. would you like to kind of go through the progression of how forensic science played such a, a crucial role in that case? Yeah, and, and let me broaden it out a little bit, if you don't mind, because, you know, when I started practicing law, uh, forensic science had very, very little to do uh, with criminal prosecutions and defense. You know, we had to deal with fingerprint evidence, maybe handwriting analysis, uh, but, you know, you didn't have all these sort of junk sciences, you know, paint comparisons and hair comparisons uh, and blood spatter analysis. Uh, none of that really existed when, when I first started practicing. Uh, and then gradually over the years, uh, these sort of what I would call pseudo or, or fake sciences started taking root. Uh, and it really it sort of developed as police officers, not as scientists, uh, decided that they could uh, glean uh, conclusions uh, from, you know, evidence that, that really had not been subjected to any kind of scientific analysis. Uh, and so, you know, you have people claiming to be able to, you know, read blood spatter who had taken a 40-hour course from somebody who wasn't a scientist himself. Uh, or, you know, hair comparisons uh, were being done, uh, you know, by people who, who really didn't uh, understand uh, scientific method. Uh, and so it became a huge, huge problem in the criminal uh, justice system. 
and it remains a huge problem, and I think it, it, it has led to a vast number of wrongful convictions. Uh, you know, there's, uh, there's an untold number of people who are in prison right now because of faulty hair comparisons, for example, which the, even the FBI has now conceded uh, really uh, uh, you can't really uh, match one hair to a particular person. Uh, so it's been a big problem. It's something that I've really focused on over the years, and it obviously was a huge problem in the staircase with, with Dwayne Deaver and his, uh, and his phony uh, blood spatter uh, uh, analysis. I didn't realize how little I, I truly knew as far as scratching the surface until I went through the forensics college up there at the Cadarzo School of Law. And, you know, having Barry Sheck kind of go through that and with all, the, obviously, the leaders throughout the country, uh, have you been able to teach at that college? or? I, I have, actually. I, I uh, uh, But not about blood spatter. I actually taught at that college about uh, false confessions, uh, which is another whole area, uh, you know, the, the read method of interrogating people uh, and uh, the, the false confessions that that method uh, elicits uh, has, has been another huge problem uh, in the area of wrongful convictions. Uh, and I have, I have taught at the Forensic College about that particular subject. For our listeners, uh, David, who are not lawyers. Would you mind explaining kind of briefly what the Reed method of interrogation is? Sure, yeah, and I apologize for, for getting a little technical. The Reed method is a it's a method of interrogation that was uh, invented, if you will, uh, by a Chicago detective uh, probably, I don't know, 50 or 60 years ago. Uh, and uh, it basically uh, postulates that uh, when when somebody comes in and denies, uh, and you think they they really are guilty, you put them in uncomfortable psychological positions uh, and give them excuses to confess, uh, and thereby induce people to essentially agree with you when you suggest that they're guilty. Um, and and that's just a, a really rough uh, analysis of the method. Uh, uh, and it has produced a number of wrongful uh, uh, false confessions, uh, and uh, and I think it's now been recognized that uh, that that method has has uh, really some substantial uh, fundamental flaws. In a classic case, you're speaking with uh, Jerry Buting uh, in the Making a Murderer documentary. You're speaking with him regarding that case. I think probably the best example for people who are listening to the podcast. Those who have watched Making a Murder, uh, Brendan Dassey's confession uh, pretty much hits all the points of a false confession. Not only was he a juvenile, he had intellectual disability. I mean, he, he pretty much fit the mold of a classic case of a false confession. The technique used by the law enforcement officers in that case was the Reed technique. And they pretty much... Absolutely. Proved... It, 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 it was classic Reed technique. I mean, literally classic. Uh, and and the result, as you pointed out, was this ridiculous confession uh, that they elicited from this you know mentally challenged juvenile. And so, with that going into speaking uh, circuit, so to speak, you have an uh, upcoming date uh, where you're discussing the staircase as well as other cases. 
in Charlotte on October 4th. Is that right? I am. Uh, uh, and, and we're going to be joined by the producer uh, of The Staircase uh, and uh, a criminal defense lawyer who, who was a reporter who covered the, uh, the trial is going to be serving as moderator. Uh, and so uh, the idea is we're going to we're going to be taking questions from the audience, uh, trying to uh, disclose some of the behind the scenes uh, uh, events uh, that really aren't uh, uh, covered in the in the, the staircase documentary, but which were were very significant in terms of what ended up happening in the case. Well, I, we definitely want to tell all our listeners if they have that opportunity, please go. Uh, and learn from the best. Yeah, it, the the uh, event is at the McGlohan Theater. It's M C capital T L O H A N in Charlotte. And I think if you go to Carolina Tix T I X, uh, and uh, and then Google inside the staircase or search inside the staircase, uh, you can find a link to the ticket. Oh, great! Perfect. Well, we would love to go visit our neighbors for the north and, and hear about this. Um, but kind of moving on to the case, one of my big questions was the media coverage. In your opinion, how did the media treat the defendant? I was watching one of the episodes of The Staircase on Netflix, um, and it seemed as though once they found out there was that separate uh, female that had passed away in Germany falling down the stairs, it, ju- it was just kind of like everything broke loose. What was your perception of, of, of how he was treated and, and how that played a role in the public perception of him? Well, you know, it played it played a critical role because that all was stage managed by the prosecution. You know, they they uh, exhumed Elizabeth Ratliff's body about two weeks before the trial was set to begin. Uh, obviously, uh, it could have been exhumed months earlier, uh, but they didn't. Uh, and, and not to interrupt you, but I noticed they, you petitioned to have a, a neutral third party do the autopsy, but instead they shipped the body back to North Carolina to the same medical examiner that had also done the victim in this case. Absolutely. And, and, they, and they made a show out of that. So they invited the media to the exhumation. So there were the reporters, uh, you know, reporting from the gravesite as the casket was was taken out of the grave. Then the reporters went along on this caravan for 1,400 miles uh, to bring this body back to the medical examiner's office that had already determined uh, that there was a, uh, a homicide in the uh, Kathleen Peterson case. Instead of uh, having the body examined by a forensic pathologist there in Texas, they made a big show of, of bringing the body into the medical examiner's office, invited the media there. Uh, and then, you know, when the autopsy report came out, uh, it wasn't just a cause of death, blunt force trauma. It was cause of death, homicidal attack, uh, which was, you know, beyond anything I'd ever seen in a, uh, in a autopsy report. Uh, and we tried to, we tried to feel that, uh, so that the, uh, jurors, potential jurors, wouldn't be prejudiced, and that motion got denied. So it was all very carefully stage managed by the prosecution and the police uh, to exert maximum prejudicial impact on the jury pool, and that's exactly what it did. Well, some of the the rulings, it was good to see 
in the new episodes that Netflix was able to bring, the interview with uh, Judge Hudson, where he got to have some reflection and say that had there been a new trial, if the charges would not have been dismissed, that he would not have ruled, or at least he said he probably would not have ruled in the same manner. Uh, so I, there was some uh, kind of at least a good feeling that him having that that moment of reflection of seeing the rulings and how prejudicial they were to the to the to him receiving a fundamentally fair trial, uh, it was good to at least see the judge admit publicly that he probably made the wrong call uh, during the first trial. You know, and I think that was that was courageous of him to do. I, I don't think there are a lot of judges who would have uh, said what he said. Uh, of course, from my perspective. It was about 15 years and three months too late. Uh, but, uh, you know, you're right. At least he had the, the courage to say, you know, I think I was wrong. Well, and with that, one of the things I wanted to focus on was the fact that a lot of people have watched the documentary, uh, and there's a lot of things that obviously that can't be put into place in a six-month trial, plus uh, all the hearings and motions that occurred later for after-discovered evidence. What are the moments that uh, that occurred in the trial that's not reflected in the documentary uh, that you'd like the public to know or something that's been presented by the news media that ultimately you think is something that you would like uh, general people who, who have watched the case uh, through the documentary that you'd want them to know? Well, let me give you one prime example. There, there are a number, but let me, let me give you one. Uh, you know, the Germany evidence... In the documentary, they had these women who were brought over from Germany, uh, one of whom had, you know, flashbacks where she remembered details that she had allegedly forgotten. Uh, they kept them all together in the same hotel for a week. Uh, they all went to dinner, breakfast, lunch together. Uh, they contaminated each other's memories. And then they all got on the stand and talked about how much blood there was all over the walls and the and the uh, stairs uh, in this apartment in Germany. Well, we went to Germany, as, as you can see in the documentary, uh, and we found the Army CID agent, the Criminal Investigation Division agent, who actually went to the scene, and he wrote a contemporaneous report. Uh, and we had that report, and uh, Steve Lyons, who was the, the CID agent, uh, testified at the trial, uh, and we introduced his report into evidence. And what his testimony indicated and what his report reflected was that there wasn't blood all around the walls and the stairs. There was a small amount of blood underneath her head. Uh, you know, he confirmed that the cause of death, uh, as, as determined by the doctor who was there at the scene, was a brain aneurysm. Uh, and in fact, the autopsy that was done at Walter Reed Army Hospital, one of the, you know, leading hospitals in the world, uh, you know, where presidents are treated, uh, was that it was a natural death from a brain aneurysm. Uh, none of that, none of that evidence, uh, was incorporated into the documentary. Uh, now, you know, as you point out, you can't incorporate everything. Uh, but I certainly would have liked to have seen that particular piece of evidence uh, displayed to, to everyone to counter what 
these women uh, came in and testified to. Well, and for South Carolina lawyers, uh, particularly criminal defense, we don't have attorney-conducted voir dire. So the thought of a six-month criminal trial other than for federal court, which is still fairly rare, uh, it just doesn't happen in South Carolina. I don't know how familiar you are with our system, uh, but it's just one of those things that's always fascinating uh, because it's South Carolina so unique in not having – uh, at least for murder trials, uh, cases that last anywhere near most other states as far as the length. Yeah, yeah, and, and jury selection in this case took about two months. Um, we started picking a jury the beginning of May, uh, and we didn't start hearing evidence until the beginning of July. Uh, and we did individual voir dire. In other words, each juror came in outside the presence of the other jurors uh, to be questioned by the prosecution. Uh, if the prosecution was satisfied, that juror was passed to us, uh, and then we got a chance to, to voir dire that particular juror individually. So it was, a, it was a labor-intensive process, but it really needed to be given the amount of prejudicial publicity that had been generated by the prosecution. What was the original size of, of the jury pool? that y'all had to pull from? You, you know, I don't remember what the original size was, but it was hundreds of people. Um, and, you know, by the time we finished, we had gone through literally hundreds of people. Uh, and, and, you know, both sides were pretty good about, you know, once somebody said, you know, gee, I, you know, I, I'm not sure I could be fair or I think I've made up my mind, there wasn't a lot of this Mickey Mouse, you know, well, you know, could you follow the judge's instructions even though you think he's guilty or, uh, you know, sort of trying to rehabilitate? Uh, we were able to cut through a lot of that. And, and once somebody indicated uh, in any way that they couldn't be fair, uh, they were pretty much gone relatively quickly. Um, David, the next part of our uh, broadcast, and actually the closing part, is what we call the cross-examination, where we get to ask you a few personal questions. My first question for you is, what issue do you believe is the biggest threat to justice in our system at this point in time? You know, it, it's hard to identify a single one, but, but I think that if you look at the problems broadly, uh, a combination of arrogance on the part of investigators and tunnel vision, which we all suffer from, uh, is, is really what leads to most of the problems. You know, the police very quickly usually decide who they believe is the, is the, is the person who committed the crime. Uh, you know, they think that they, based on their experience, they don't, somebody's not, quote, acting right. Their emotions aren't correct. Uh, you know, they have some apparent motive, you know, like the spouse had a life insurance policy. It doesn't matter if that policy was in effect for 20 years. Um, and so they, they settle on a suspect. And then tunnel vision kicks in. Uh, and tunnel vision we all suffer from. It's simply the, the phenomenon where once you, once you sort of make up your mind about a theory, you uh, focus in on the facts, you select the facts, that are consistent with that theory, and you ignore uh, or minimize the facts that are inconsistent with that theory. 
And what that leads to is, is you know, the problem that, that we all see uh, where cases get brought uh, that are just really weak. Uh, and, and then, you know, because it's an adversary system, uh, once somebody gets arrested and charged, it's very hard to sort of stop the wheels in motion. Um, you know, there's egos involved. You know, there's, everyone's, uh, everyone's subject to this sort of competitive urge uh, in an adversary system. And so I think, you know, at, at bottom, uh, the real problem is, you know, sort of the, the quick-to-judge police officer coupled with tunnel vision, and that then leads to all these, you know, fake science things, which, which are brought in to try to bolster a weak case. So basically outcome-driven result where uh, they make the facts that support the conclusion fit based on the narrative that they've already decided in their mind versus, and like you said, ignoring or minimizing uh, inconsistent theories or facts that do not support their conclusion? Absolutely. And you saw that with Dwayne Deaver. I mean, you saw that with his experiments. His experiments weren't designed to, to actually determine the truth about blood spatter. They were designed to try to replicate uh, his theory. Everything is outcome-driven instead of truth-driven. Uh, and so you saw that in, in Dwayne Deaver's experiments, which were designed to achieve a particular result. They weren't designed to simply find out the truth about blood spatter. Uh, and, and that's sort of a good example of tunnel vision and outcome-driven uh, uh, expert uh, sort of contaminating the, the whole trial. Coupled with his just blatant perjury, uh, one of the things I haven't researched, did he ever spend any jail time on this case? No. You know better than that. Well, I know that there had never been until recently the one prosecutor uh, in Texas was the first prosecutor ever to do 10 days yep. uh, in Michael Morton's yep. case. And I think, you know, Exactly. Michael Morton did over 20 years in prison for his wrongful conviction, right. and the prosecutor who put him there only did 10 days. So I wasn't. Uh, I assumed, as you as you said, I I assumed he had not spent one night in in, in jail. So I hate to no, even no, I mean, have that confirmed. He didn't, even lose, he didn't even lose his job over that particular incident. He lost his job over a wholly separate problem. Uh, so no, I mean the problem is that you know uh, prosecutors don't don't tend to prosecute their witnesses who commit perjury. Uh, they only tend to prosecute uh, defense witnesses who they decide have committed perjury. Yeah. Well, going to our, our next question, besides the Peterson case, what's the most memorable case or issue that you've worked on as a lawyer? It, it certainly doesn't have to be high profile. Just what, what case has meant the most to you besides that case? Well, uh, actually, the, the case that is probably most memorable to me is, is the Ray Carruth case, which was another very high-profile case. You know, Ray was a uh, Carolina Panther receiver uh, back in the late 90s who was charged with masterminding the, the murder of his pregnant girlfriend. Uh, it got a lot of press uh, nationally because he had been uh, the leading rookie receiver in the NFL the preceding year. Uh, and uh, and he was charged with a death penalty offense. So he was an NFL player, an active NFL player, who was facing the death penalty. Uh, that got a lot of press. Uh, we tried that case, I think it was three months long. 
uh, and he was acquitted of the murder. Uh, he was convicted of a conspiracy, uh, and uh, he was sentenced to, to 20 years, uh, and uh, he's actually getting out uh, next month. I saw the case recently in the news uh, since he had filed to try to regain custody of his son, and so I, I saw that it, the case kind of resurfaced, and you couldn't have a more case is filled with many different type of issues than that one with the death penalty mixed with a murder for hire. You know, it's just one of those cases that uh, from a standpoint of issues that, you know, uh, I could imagine uh, why it stood out. Well, and I, I had, I had the experience of having the, uh, the person who actually fired the gun uh, that killed uh, Sharika Adams uh, threaten me in the courtroom and tell me that he could uh, rip me limb from limb like a little rag doll. Uh, so oh, wow. uh, that that sort of stands out in my in my uh, in my memory of uh, of cases and and uh, courtroom events. I'm glad you brought that up. I had totally forgotten. I've seen that. I believe that clip has been played before, uh, where he, where he does mention uh, that. So. Uh, for those of you that is probably on YouTube, if, if people are listening, want to try to find it uh, to see kind of how contentious and how uh, obviously controversial that case was, you certainly look it up. Uh, there's plenty of news articles and YouTube videos on that case. Our last cross-examination question for you, David, is what advice would you give a young lawyer? Um, you know, other than going to medical school. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, uh, I, I, I give this advice to everybody, uh, and I think it, it certainly applies to a young lawyer. You know, follow your passion. Uh, you know, when you are graduating from law school, don't worry about what job path is going to, you know, lead you to the best outcome 30 years from then. Uh, do what you feel in your heart and your gut you want to do. Uh, you don't know what opportunities are going to come along uh, uh, based on what you choose. Uh, you can't figure that out. And if you do what you really want to do, if you, if you follow your passion, uh, no matter what happens, you're going to be happy because while it's happening, you're following your passion. So, that's the best advice I can give to anybody, and it certainly applies to, to young lawyers. And I see a lot of young lawyers who go into big law who uh, who end up uh, with sort of miserable lives, and, and I think that's really sad. Right. There's just – it's absolutely no way to live, and it it's worked out for you and uh, any other lawyer who's as, – as I saw even on your website, you said if you do what you truly love, you, you're not really working, and certainly uh, that – that has been uh, kind of a good epitome of your career is following your passion and certainly defending uh, your clients uh, to a T. One of the things I'm sure our producer Brendy is going to kill me, but I, I do want to bring it up because it's now recently come into the news and something that I believe you will address at your your speaking events is the owl theory. Uh, and so I just want I, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least touch on it with you while I had the opportunity to speak with you. Uh, so if you could, do you give me your thoughts, uh, kind of your opinions on the owl theory that's originated uh, with the Peterson case uh, throughout the Internet? Sure. And I'm going to save you from your producer because I'm not going to give away very much. People should just 
come and listen uh, and ask <laughs> questions about it in person. Uh, but what I will say is that the owl theory is very viable. Uh, I think uh, it's it's a much more logical theory than the blowpoke theory that the prosecution used, uh, and I think it explains a lot of the evidence that we couldn't really understand and that we had tunnel vision about back in 2003 uh, because the owl theory never occurred to us. It just, I never thought about it. Uh, it, it really didn't arise until the very end of the trial when, when a neighbor brought it to our attention uh, and, and it was too late to, to get into it at the trial. So if you're interested in the owl theory, uh, you can take a look at my website uh, uh, where it's discussed in some detail, detail which is www.davidsrudolph.com. Uh, but uh, even better, uh, you know, come to the event, uh, ask your questions, and uh, and uh, we'll try to answer them. And that's in Charlotte on October 4th. That's correct. Perfect. Well, David, thank you so much for being with us today. Again, ladies and gentlemen, as you're listening, the Inside the Staircase conference will take place in Charlotte on October the 4th. You can follow David Rudolph at davidsrudolph.com. You can buy the tickets for that conference at carolinaticks.com. The producer of The Staircase will actually be the moderator, and by producer, I mean the producer on the Netflix series. So in closing, just a reminder, uh, thank you again for all of your support. You can follow us at SC Law Pod on Twitter and on Facebook. You can follow Joseph B.S. at Joseph P.B.S. You can follow Dane at SC Crim Lawyer, and you can follow me at Red Judicata. And, and David, where can they follow you on social media? Uh, my Twitter account is uh, at David S. Rudolph, or U-D-O-L-F, and that's my Facebook page as well, so they can find me on both of those uh, platforms. Perfect. Well, I also just want to say thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. We're forever grateful, obviously, for you taking the time. Uh, to review it, and we are pleading to our listeners to go uh, see him on October 4th, and uh, we certainly wish you the best uh, with everything and look forward to the next high-profile case that you work on. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank, thank you. Thank you, and thank you for taking the time to speak with us.